You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience on this fine Tuesday, August 21st. It is late afternoon, and we're going to have a special guest with us today. I talk about all the time, Derek Maltz, former DEA operator, head of the Drug Enforcement Administration Special Operations Division for, for 10 years. He retired in 2014. Um, but first, yes, this is Daniel Horowitz back here, and I wanted to let you guys know I really appreciate your feedback. I know I got very strong, positive feedback from this show we did it to, to, to begin this week on the drug crisis being about so much more than drugs and what is actually going on with drugs, immigration, crime, terrorism, the nexus of all of it, the perspective that you will not hear from anyone else. You know, even though the week has somewhat matured, as we would say in this industry, um, in terms of news cycle, by the time you get to, you know, Tuesday afternoon already, the week seems to be defined, but it is a quiet week. And, you know, it's still the same garbage news cycle. I don't even know what the big conservative talkers are talking about, uh, the same garbage. But in my view, um, this is still the most important issue, that they are working on jailbreak to pass in the bit in the Senate just what they view is the first modest step that they're going to build upon to re- reduce sentencing on the front end, back end for the most violent people in federal prison. Federal prison, you got to understand the nature of who's there. Um, and you know, I so I appreciate all your feedback. I just didn't get a chance to really respond to everyone. You know, it kind of depends if um, <laughs> looking on my phone if I'm. On the, on the move when I uh, get the email or if I'm at my desk. If I'm at my desk, I could usually respond, and I try to, but I apologize to those who haven't. But, you know, I, I take everything you say, um, you know, to heart, and I've gotten a lot of good suggestions, good ideas, good leads, good narratives. So great, great job. Um, this is really one of the smartest audiences that's starving for real facts, real perspective, real issues. Um, and you, you know, we're, we're not getting that anywhere and that's the problem. So the forces of dark are the only ones operating in this space, promoting jailbreak built on a lie. Now, you know, to cap off the show last week, I talked about Chuck Grassley, one of the lead sponsor, the chairman, the Republican chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee that is sponsoring this bill. And I noted and I dug up in a series of five floor speeches from a couple years ago before he himself introduced this bill when others introduced it. He lambasted every provision and every premise, everything that I'm telling you that I've said that Jeff Sessions have said about this bill and this effort, this broader movement for years. He said it. I have an article, the definitive takedown of Chuck Grassley, showing that he is the biggest hypocrite on crime and drugs in the history of, of our body politic. It's unbelievable. Um, we'll see if the media picks up on it, but no one wants to hold him accountable because uh, you know everyone's for jailbreak. So we got that going on. Um, in the meantime, you know, you got the Senate in session. It's funny. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell made a big deal about bringing them back, and they're doing nothing. 
all they're doing is passing this massive bill that funds the Labor Department, HHS, Department of Education, and then pairing it against the military, which is extremely insidious. It increases spending across the board for all these agencies Trump promised to cut. It funds Planned Parenthood. It funds Obamacare. Um, awful stuff going on there. Uh, Rand Paul, to his credit, is trying to push a vote on an amendment to strip funding for Planned Parenthood out of the HHS title of this bill. Uh, we'll we'll see what happens. You know whether whether it even comes up for a vote. But um, you know. Every day, you hear one-sided stories. It's as if ICE is being too tough on immigration. You know, imagine if, imagine if you had a discussion of abortion centered exclusively around when the mother's life is in danger or rape. Obviously, you can't have a dialogue like that because it completely skews. Well, for every ten people that are like this, you know, there's a million that you're just, you know, cutting their necks off for no reason um, when they're half out, half out of the womb. That's the debate we have on immigration, and that's the same debate we have on crime and drug and, and drug trafficking. They'll focus on these straw men, oh, this person, nonviolent, when often they're lying about that one person or it's one exception. You know, Nothing's perfect. It's an exception, and they don't focus on all these stories. So we have a bunch of stories out. We'll try to link to in show notes if we don't get to it today of people that are – I mean this guy, this Im- Muslim immigrant who um, raped – he was a doctor, and he raped a bunch of women when they were sedated in his office. No jail time. No jail time. This happens all the time. We have an under-incarceration problem for every person that you could argue, even wrongly, that they're over, you know, over-sentenced. There's hundreds of rape, rapists, armed robbers, and murderers that go never-sentenced or under-sentenced, or never even caught, obviously. This whole movement... To release drug traffickers. And again, as I've noted chapter and verse, I've cited chapter and verse, that's just the opening bid. They're going to murder, and indeed, juvenile murders is in Title II of Lee Durbin. I don't know if they're going to put that part in this bill they're concocting today, but that is that is there. California already did it. This whole narrative is almost like Picture, picture at some point, you are you know, you're, you're driving down a highway and you have a right, uh, uh, you know, picture a guardrail or a barrier on the right and a barrier on the left, and at some point you were, you know, drifting towards that guardrail into the right, and you immediately corrected, and then you corrected, and then you overcorrected. And overcorrected. And now you're an inch away from the left barrier. Imagine a guy saying, you can't crash into the right barrier. You're going to crash into the right barrier. Veer left. Veer left. Turn left. That is what's going on with this criminal justice reform movement. We've already let these people out. We've already prospectively we're not convicting people. Possession for sure not. There's already multiple safety valve avenues that they utilize and escape the mandatories. 
the truth be told, ever since U.S. v. Booker in 2005, that was really the watershed moment. They're no longer mandatory. The courts, and one of the most lawless things, made them um, guidelines. They're called sentencing guidelines. They're not even called mandatories anymore. They're not mandatory. We've already abolished them. Crime is already going up. We already have the worst drug trafficking crisis. And Chuck Grassley said all this. I'm not going to spend time on this show today reading all of them. I read some of them on, on, on Sunday. But make sure to check out this article. Um, Chuck Grassley being the biggest hypocrite around. So uh, anyway, I want to bring in our guest. For a very long time, I wanted to have Derek Maltz back on the program. Um, his time is very limited today. He's traveling very busy, but he served in the Drug Enforcement Administration for 28 years. He was most prominently the special agent in charge of the Special Operations Division uh, for the last 10, 12 years of that career when he retired in 2014, a very critical uh, time, a transition period in the drug crisis. And he particularly dealt with narco-terrorism, the, the nexus between drugs and terrorism tying into immigration, which is really the crux of what we've been talking about. So rather than hearing from me fully for another show, I wanted you to get a real expert perspective from someone who's actually dealt with this problem before anyone was focusing on it. Hey, Derek, it's an honor to bring you back here the second time to the conservative conscience. Uh, thank you, Daniel. It's uh, great to be with you. Boy, you've really been uh, <laughs> making your rounds, you know, since you, you came on this show and you really uh, I appreciate you breaking the news with us for the first time. A lot of your stories you have, you're spe finally speaking about about your tenure in um, in government, particularly with counter-narcotics. I want to get your thoughts, the first thing going through your mind, as we're seeing a subset of the drug crisis that you wouldn't readily identify if you don't have the proper background that you know we have the heroin fentanyl meth cocaine and all the stuff laced with fentanyl and everything but then there's this particular subset where we see um young kids adult young adults in all the major metro areas we saw seven people die 300 uh poisoned in DC last month um, just last week, the big story out of New Haven, a bunch of people taking K2 or Spice, the synthetic marijuana package, but it's laced with other poisons, and they just start dropping in these parks. Generally speaking, where is this coming from, and why are we seeing this now? Okay, uh, so Daniel, one of the things I want to make clear is like this new explosion of like issues when it comes to K2 and synthetic is all emanating from China. So China has like a form of low intensity chemical warfare on America. And the sad part is the Mexican cartels are getting really, really rich. The illegal aliens that are all over our cities are getting rich and they're establishing themselves in our communities. And really probably the most disturbing from my perspective is how these groups from the Middle East are now involved with all kinds of crime at these bodegas, gas stations, convenience stores, and sending money back to support radical terrorism in Yemen, as an example. And there was a UN report that came out recently that Al-Qaeda was actually building up some capacity and getting stronger in Yemen. And, you know, that's AQT's headquarters. You know, that's a very big uh, part of Al-Qaeda. And it's really disturbing um, that, that this money is going to be going back to support these kind of groups. 
Um, and again, going back to what I said earlier, right, you have a situation where, um, you know, terrorists are increasingly looking for crime and, you know, going to crime and criminal networks for their funding because they need money to actually operate. And the crime, the money from drug trafficking are generating billions of dollars. And, you know, there's another side of this, Daniel, which everyone has to wake up and listen to. Going back to our large scale Afghan cases against the Taliban and Khan Maham and the Haji Bachko, these are like the biggest traffickers in the world. During those cases, we were told and we developed evidence that these guys recognized that selling heroin to the West was a jihad against the infidels. So it was an attack against our country. So it's the same thing going on now. They're spraying rat poison on this K2 and synthetic compound that's made in China. And our kids and our communities are bleeding from the eyes, bleeding from the ears. And now everyone's like, well, how is this happening? Well, it happened in our nation's capital. 300 people were dropping all over the, the streets in, in Washington, D.C. The FDA had to issue a warning on the blood supply because the blood supply was being tainted with the rat poison. And oh so, so we have a real serious issue. There was the major uh, FDA warning uh, when the incident was going on in D.C. And people have to pay attention now, in my opinion, is that China is taking advantage of this situation because they are not only going after our cyber systems and hacking into our systems and maybe looking at our financial networks and our electrical grids, but now they have this chemical from fentanyl and then the chemical from K2 and synthetic drugs, and it's killing our communities. It's killing families, right? So there's a much bigger issue going on. This health, this drug issue is not a health issue. It's a <laughs> national security issue. I mean, what you're describing to me, we could literally ban every, you know, morsel of morphine, oxycodone, Percocet, whatever, and you know, you'll a lot of people will be in pain, and that's a different story. But it it doesn't speak to what's going on. Um, I want to work a little bit backwards before we get into the main thrust of this with the fact that this is this subset of the crisis is not so much the Mexican cartels. The K2 is mainly um, uh, the, the Yemeni owned bodegas, mini mart selling this stuff. And I, I talked about it off air or, you know, different times on the show without you. And I've cited you, but I want to just start with what happened in New Haven, Connecticut. I was a little bit surprised because every other case I've seen, um, I didn't realize this until you pointed this out to me. It's remarkable that almost all of them are Yemeni owned. In this case, it looks like it wasn't um, K2 laced with rat poison by Yemenis. It was K2 laced with fentanyl by, I mean, one, the, the biggest guy's name, it sounds like a Hispanic sounding name. Another one is an American sounding name. Um, one's Melendez, one's Parker. Is it that others have caught on? Well, first of all, Daniel, it's an active investigation, and nobody really knows uh, the sources of this. I mean, yeah, there was some arrests made, but quite quite often there's drug runners on the streets that are looking to make a couple extra bucks, and they're, they're really not the brains behind the operation, mm. and they're actually running this stuff up and down to the users. So some of the arrests that have been publicized, I mean, I wouldn't look too much into that. We don't really know yet, and we certainly don't know because the lab reports haven't come back what was actually in this substance. What we do know is that China labs are making this synthetic compound every single day, exporting it right into America, 
This stuff is going on leaf material. It's chopped up, put into these little exotic packages and sold to our communities, right? Nobody really knows what they're getting. They're not getting synthetic marijuana. Wait, wait, wait. They're getting stop, stop. Derek, Derek, I, I want you to hone in on a point for me. Am I correct? Because you, you're, you're saying no one knows what's going on. Um, you know, a lot of people, I, I know some more libertarians, like, ah, screw it. You know, these people want to kill themselves, whatever. But is in fact what's going on here is that it's not so much that people are ordering, hey, I want some fentanyl, so I'm going to order it from China. It, you know, everyone's saying, oh, it's coming from China. But, and of course it is. But who is it going to? Isn't it the cartels that are ordering course, it? Of course, yes. And then they well, lace it in. And, and, right. and well, it's un, unsus, unsuspecting people just, you know, you have youngsters that are seeking a buzz, unfortunately. I wish we didn't have it, but we do have that. You, you know, I have in my community, very religious community, the parents certainly don't encourage drugs. But, you know, some kids get, get roped into it and they make one mistake. They're dead. Well, there's two separate things we're talking about, Daniel. First of all, when we talk about this opioid heroin fentanyl crisis, right? It's really clear on what's happening there. The chemicals uh, like fentanyl chemicals are being you know, produced in China. And the Mexican cartels, very sophisticated cartels, have set up laboratory operations where they import massive quantities of the fentanyl and they mix it into their traditional like heroin products. Right. Because mm. it's cheaper for them to do that. They don't want to go out and get involved in the opium process and cultivation and all the fields that they need and the weather and the water. It's just easy to buy it already made and they get it very cheap. Okay. So, you know, so for example, if you're spending 3,500 or $5,000 for a kilo of fentanyl. Oh, and by the way, Daniel, I don't think the people understand this. One pound of fentanyl has over 450,000 milligrams of of, uh, of substance, right? So according to the experts and the doctors, it only takes two milligrams to kill an adult. So if one pound of that fentanyl gets into America, in theory, that can kill over 200 people. One pound, okay? It's like four grains of salt. So we're not talking about a large amount of, of powder. So that stuff is coming from China. It's being mixed in labs in Mexico. The Mexican cartels are taking complete advantage of the, the, the demand that's going on because of the years of the pill crisis where everyone was popping opioids. Uh, you know, you go to you have a sports injury, you go to the doctor, you get an opioid, then you get hooked. Now you can't afford the pills anymore. So you go out to the streets and you buy a bag of heroin. And unfortunately, the heroin's laced with fentanyl and you die. So that's that's one crisis. The second crisis, which is a whole different animal, is the the op the uh, synthetic cannabinoid is made in China labs and sent to America. And these groups primarily that run these bodegas and gas stations, that's where we're seeing a lot of the distribution uh, of K2 and the spice. And so that's a totally separate thing. Now, why somebody would want to spray rat poison or, or this other poison into this, this synthetic compound, I really don't know. My theory is it's the same kind of theory we've talked about with the, with the Afghan heroin that if they can make millions of dollars to support terrorism back in the Middle East and kill Americans and destroy families, that's a that's a win win for them. Right. So so there's two separate issues going on. As far as I know, I don't have information that the Mexican cartels are behind the distribution of mass amounts of K2 and synthetic sure. drugs. But the Mexican cartels make no mistake. They are the ones that are causing this unbelievable crisis in our country when it comes to uh, you know, opioid uh, related deaths and 
You know, it's not the pharmaceutical companies anymore. I mean, it was the pharmaceutical companies back in the day. And I'm sure there's still some that are, you know, trying to make money and pushing out, you know, mass amounts of, of opioids. But the reality is, is that the people are hooked. They're turning to the streets and the cartels own the streets of America. The gangs, the cartels, the illegal aliens, they own the streets. So they're, they're, they're messing with something that's poison. They don't know what they're doing. They're not chemists. They don't have quality control. And they're putting this substance in, a, in a little bags and tinfoil, and they're pushing it to the street, and the kids don't know what they're using, and they're dying. It's really that simple, Danny, right? So it's the cartels making billions of dollars. And, and by the way, just so you know, the cartels are very smart in that they've learned over the years. And that's why we, years ago, when we did a full-court blitz on the precursor chemicals for methamphetamine, like pseudoephedrine and ephedrine, the super labs started popping up in Mexico. Why? Because they went right to the source countries for the chemicals. They went to Asia and they imported mass amounts of pseudoephedrine and ephedrine so they can make their own meth. And that's why we have super lab operations now in Mexico. Well, kind of the same thing has happened over the years with the fentanyl, right? You had just massive distribution of high quality heroin going on for years, right? Going on for 20 years now. And then the Mexican cartel started getting involved with this business. And then they realized, well, we're not going to make heroin in Mexico. It's too, it's too expensive. It's too many hassles. So they're importing the chemicals right from China. And then they have their own labs set up. And what they do is, is they just mix the powder and the different, you know, different substances. And then they package it and they you know, make millions and millions of dollars. But unfortunately, people are dying now. One other thing, Daniel, that you need to realize with this fentanyl crisis is that the numbers are very misleading because even though, you know, there was reports like in 2017, 72,000 people died of drug overdoses. I don't know exactly what was the amount for fentanyl, but here's what I know. The first responders are running around the country every day with Narcan, right? Yep. People are going into uh, CVS and Walgreens and they're able to buy Narcan now. So they have it at home. So if they have an overdose, they're kind of reviving themselves. So the numbers are really misleading. Thank God we have Narcan and we're saving lives with it. But what I'm saying is that the business is booming and it's the Mexican cartels and yep. these illegals that are coming over the border that are all over our country. And, and we want to keep letting more in. No, no, I mean, because you're really providing the middle uh, link in the chain. You know, China was always producing this stuff, you know, fairly you know, not not just the last couple of years. There's more than that, but this this degree of crisis only started, well, not coincidentally, around 2014, which is the takeoff of the UACs, the open borders of Obama's second term, um, and the sanctuary cities, which you know then attracts them where they could operate unmolested. And that's what I wanted to talk to you, um, both from the immigration angle, and non-immigration angle. Uh, what we started out the show with today, and really yesterday's show as well is this criminal justice reform where everyone in Washington, all the cool kids on both parties are obsessed with dramatically, prospectively, and retroactively um, letting out drug traffickers from prison. And there's this stigma against prosecuting them. Oh, I don't want to load up my prisons with more of these people, whatever. I want you to explain to our listeners the cascading effect of not pursuing these leads 
um, when you see them, when you see these maybe mid-level drug traffickers and you're like, yeah, I don't want to lock up more people for, for drugs. Let's not prosecute this case. What winds up happening? Well, okay, it's just going to be more crime, more murder, more burglaries, you know, more violence in our cities around America. I mean, just look at the news, like Chicago, right? Look at last weekend, 60 people shot, what, four or five dead. And every weekend we have to hear about this because it's the sanctuary cities, it's the illegals in these cities, and there has to be some form of punishment. If you're, if you're killing citizens of America by pushing poison on the streets, you have to feel some pain. You have to go to jail. We don't want to put drug users in prison. We want to get them help. Okay. And I think that's been twisted in the yeah. media where they have people thinking that the DEA or Homeland Security or FBI is picking on innocent, like medical marijuana patients and, and people that have some, you know, psychological issues that got into opioids. That's not what law enforcement's trying to do. Law enforcement is, is attacking networks, attacking bad guys, attacking criminal transnational crime groups, right? That's what we do. We go after the whole network, right? And so we want to put those networks in jail and we want to use the mandatory sentencing because mandatory sentencing does a lot. So I'll give you an example. If Daniel was arrested and he has young children, he has a wife, he has a family, and then he's looking at you know 25 years to life in prison, well, there's a good chance Daniel would want to come in and cooperate with law enforcement to try to, you know, help himself, help his family, you know, learn his lesson, which is fine, right? We encourage that stuff, right? But here's the thing. If Daniel's facing four months in jail, right, <laughs> he's not going to cooperate. He's not going to tell the story. And law enforcement needs to hear the stories inside the organization. That's how they are successfully going after networks. And so this whole business about these politicians, you know, they turn 180 degrees, right? You know, whatever's popular for the day, they're going to say they're against, you know, mandatory sentences. And then when they see cities imploding with crime, now all of a sudden they need to be tough on drug traffickers and violence. It's like they don't even know what day of the week it is, these guys. They just talk and pontificate and they're self-serving and they're not looking out for the national security and the public safety of the citizens. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm, I'm just spellbound listening to this. I'm thinking, you know. Let's take this a step further. So it's bad enough when you don't uncover the drug networks, um, which often, almost always at a primary level, will be the Mexican cartels or other transnational cartels, will be criminal aliens that you could throw them out of here, you could get rid of them, and we're not doing it because of the sanctuary cities and other policies, and then that just the general weak on drug mentality over the past decade. But this K2 Spice thing, so... That's a level worse because this is almost exclusively in the province of Yemeni nationals likely funding terrorism with it. This started in well, 2014. You, you were involved in this project synergy where they took down tons of these bodegas and mini marts in 2014, 2015. But I'm seeing this year in Chicago. We had it in Brooklyn. Um, I was – and if you want to talk about the Zindani stuff in Alabama, you know, you'll let me know. But I want to go to – the assistant U.S. attorney at the time in 2015 in New York, Southern District of New York, said that they were looking into 90, as many as 90 of these mini-marts. 90 of exactly. them. Exactly. It's that pervasive. And, yes. And let me, let me talk about that case. Okay, so let me go back in time. We started seeing like 2009, 2010, 
we started seeing this stuff called synthetic marijuana. Personally, I didn't even know what K2 and Spice was, but some of my family friends would call me and say, hey, Derek, I found this, this substance in my daughter's bedroom. Like, what is this stuff? And I started taking some interest, started learning. And then we started seeing like overdoses and all kinds of psychosis and heart-related conditions in the cities. And, and then all of a sudden it became like, what the hell is this synthetic cannabinoid, uh, K2 and Spice? So people started taking interest. So the DEA came together with a strategy back in like 2009, 2010, to start looking at the organizations that were involved with importing the, the K2 and Spice. And we started getting an interagency effort at my old operations, special operations division, multiple agencies all looking at this with CPP and FBI and custom, you know, I, I'm sorry, and Homeland Security investigations and DEA, we started seeing like just unbelievable amounts coming into the country. So when we started making arrests, we started seeing a common theme, gas stations, bodegas, convenience stores around the country at that time, primarily on the east side of the country, where we started seeing these groups from the Middle East specifically, we started seeing, like in Alabama, we started seeing folks from Yemen. But what really was disturbing, Daniel, is the amount of millions of dollars we started seeing leaving the United States going through the banks into Yemen. And then when we started uncovering some other links in Yemen and started doing some research on what's going on in Yemen, what, what's happening with these radical fundraising drives, you know, trying to recruit people around the world to send money back to Yemen to support their radical agendas. And we started looking at some of the people on the ground. And when you start looking at the, the social media profiles and you start seeing the pictures with the guns and the, and the blood and the, and the people and, and, and start idolizing some people in Yemen, we knew we Whoa. had a bigger issue than well, yeah, wait, wait, a Derek, bigger issue. Derek, so, so, so let's just take this low. You're throwing in a lot of stuff here. So you're telling me that you would see you know, it, it picture you going another drug bust. All right, yeah, some guy in a back alley selling drugs. And you, then you realize, no, 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 this is a mini mart. It's owned by um, Yemeni nationals, usually immigrants, or recent immigrants, relatively, especially back then. And then you see money flowing back, and then you find out these names, and you look on their social media, which. You know, that's something that really changed the, towards the end of your career. You know, now you can actually, you know, look at that. And you're seeing jihadist paraphernalia and pictures. So this is very different than your, you know, 1980s crack bust. <laughs> right, exactly. And this is the thing. And it, and it goes back to a much larger problem we have, Daniel. And this is this is what I've been saying for a long time. I didn't just say this today. If your whole system of justice is saying that terrorists are increasingly turning to crime and criminal networks for the funding, then you better have your terror investigators and your crime investigators working together, much closer together. Mm. That has not happened. After 9-11, we built walls up between our criminal investigations and our terror investigations, and those walls are larger now and higher than they've ever been. Now, don't get me wrong. The FBI's JTTFs have done a phenomenal job with the interagency partners when it comes to, you know, a criminal case that leads to a terror case. Everyone is well-trained and well-educated on how to handle this. But in reverse, it's a disaster. If you have a, a lead on a terrorist and you want to figure out, like, well, where's the funding coming from? Well, you better look at the criminal networks around America, around the world. And that hasn't happened too much, Daniel. And so this is a classic case for, uh, for that example. Because from the DEA's perspective, we just saw, you know, millions of dollars going back to Yemen from these groups from Yemen. Well, we don't have like 
the, the, the intelligence on the ground in Yemen, or we didn't at the time, I can't say what they do now, but, but like there's other agencies in the U.S. government that have that responsibility. And there was a, there's a breakdown constantly on that. Now, if you look at the New York case in 2015, they had an awesome press conference. You know, Bill Bratt and Preparara, you know, announced this major takedown with all the interagency partners, and they knocked the socks off this major network of Yemenis from New York. And really the alarming thing, Daniel, is when they announced it was escalated. Even Paul Barrara in the press conference mentioned like maybe 70 were identified. And then Bill Bratton, because the NYPD's intelligence, they actually identified like 90 of these retail locations. But it gets even worse, Daniel, and this is what people don't realize. These bodega operations, they're not just involved with, you know, selling candy and milk and cigarettes and, you know, and, and toilet paper. They're selling this poison, but they're also doing the following other crimes. They're selling drug paraphernalia. They're selling the little bags that they're putting the heroin in on the streets. They're actually involved with EBT fraud, beating our welfare system, Daniel, which really pisses me off, to be honest with you, because we all pay a lot of taxes. And these people on welfare go into the store owner, give them a $100 card, and then the store owner gives them $50 in cash to the welfare recipient. The store owner takes the $100 card, goes out to one of the... uh, you know, the, the stores and buys like $100 worth of goods. So he just doubled his money on the legitimate goods. But all the profits of these crimes are commingled. And by the way, do some research on this one, because this one will get your head spinning. Congressman King and the Homeland Security Committee in 2007 wrote a very disturbing report called Tobacco and Terror. It's on the Internet. It's not anything more than just, hey, they're importing cigarettes illegally into New York. They're beating the New York state taxes on the cigarettes, and they're selling them out the back door because they're making a lot of money. So they commingled money from K2 spice, synthetic drugs, uh, counterfeiting, uh, you know, illegal cigarette trafficking, EBT fraud, and then monies are going back to support these radical jihads. Now, people say, well, do you have the smoking gun? Well, I don't have the smoking gun. I'm retired now. But when I was there, in my operation, I saw some really disturbing videos. I saw some really disturbing pictures. And now as a civilian, I went onto Facebook just a couple of weeks ago, social media sites, and I found like really, really dramatic and really disgusting pictures. And, and this stuff is, is really alarming. Wait, wait, and pictures. The public has to really wake up. Wait, when you say pictures, pictures by some of the people that your operation brought down – um, yes, and we've arrested them, and we, we know who they are. We know where they are. Well, not now, I don't, but, I mean, people probably are out there looking at where they are, what they're doing. But the point is is that they're idolizing radical terrorists over in Yemen. They're sending money back, and, and obviously these terrorist organizations need cash to operate. They yes. need to be able to uh, buy weapons, buy explosives, do training. A lot of terrorism acts are not very expensive to carry out, but it's all the other logistics and the support yes. mechanisms. And the biggest thing, by the way, Daniel, that people need to know is that you have to always have corrupt government officials in other countries, and they want cash when you're make, making the payment. They don't want a credit card, right? And so they don't want anything but cash. Uh, so so, so this point. is a big thing. And oh, going back to something really important that you brought up, and I want to make sure this is clear. So when you have mandatory sentences, right, and you arrest people that then realize they've made mistakes and they have to try to turn their life around to support their families and stuff, and they start cooperating with law enforcement, they actually now 
can tell us, you know, what's going on in the network, who's behind it, how's the money moving, how the drugs are coming into America. Well, if there's no leverage because the sentence is going to be four months or out the door tomorrow, they're not going to cooperate and we're going to lose visibility. Now, what's really disturbing, Daniel, is with the advancement of emerging technology in this country, law enforcement is losing the ability to do the things that we did in the 80s and 90s and 2000s because of encryption and some of the going dark issues that you've heard about. You know, the former FBI director and other people have been in the news talking about how this stuff impacts our, our terrorism investigations, right? But it's really impacting every investigation. Every single criminal investigation is impacted by advanced communication. So you certainly then need the human source to then infiltrate the network. Otherwise, you're totally in the dark and you're waiting for something bad to happen, okay? And this is another thing, like Congress has been way behind in, in actually supporting the law enforcement needs when it comes to advancing their capabilities for the uh, you know, telecommunications world or communications world. Uh, so this is another whole, we could do another show on just the emerging technologies and, sure. and how critical now human sources become. Now, if they don't have the sentences, they're out on the street, they're going back into their business, right? And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of different issues tied to this, Daniel, but at the end of the day, everyone in government has a responsibility to protect the public, right? This is number one, priority number one. And, you know, we've done a great job over the years in law enforcement, and they continue to put their lives on the line, and they go out there to do things. But they need the support. They need the support from the leaders, and they need the support, and they need the resources to do what they need to do to stop this, this madness. And, you know, it's just a matter of time because, you know, when some rock star or some movie star dies from heroin or fentanyl, then all of a sudden people pay attention, right? But when these kids are waking up dead every day in their bedrooms, and their parents have no idea what hit little Johnny, uh, and now all of a sudden nobody really cares, right? Well, that's, that's unacceptable, and I think that the public has a more of a responsibility to start speaking out, talking to the congressional people, making sure they understand what needs to be done. Yeah, Stop because running I mean, around the beltway pontificating all day and get something done. They're totally out of it because they have no clue where this is coming from. And I think the New Haven case, and I know it's still ongoing, but one of the guys they arrested, this Felix Melendez, he evidently was caught with K2 um, in May, but he was already out on parole with four felony convictions. And, you know, so part of the problem we discussed at the beginning of the show, the, the whole thing about this jailbreak movement, and I'm sure you saw it towards the tail end of your career, is that almost every state and the federal government on some levels in the federal system, they've already implemented so many leniencies on this um, more than ever over the last 12 years, not wanting to lock these people up. So what happens, what my fear is that, you know, and these people, they think drugs are no big deal. That That's what the political class thinks. Let, let's just indulge that thought process for a minute. But what you're describing here is that forget about the drugs for a, ma you know, for a minute because we don't seem to care about people dying. But just from the, the national security standpoint, if you don't go after these people and, and with these heavy sentences and force them to cooperate and instead you put them out on probation – then we're never going to find out, hey, Felix Melendez, where do you get this stuff from? Right. You need the cooperation. And, you know, we've been very successful. All the agencies understand the importance of, you know, getting cooperators, getting the story from an insider. Right. 
And, you know, the United States Attorney's Office, the District Attorney's Offices, they, they've understood this for years. Like, that's a critical component of doing the job of law enforcement. But if there's no incentive for the, uh, for the uh, you know, bad guy to cooperate, to put his family at risk and stuff, they're just going to do their couple of months in jail, come out and get right back into the business. So, you know, look, the other thing about this drug crisis, which gets twisted all the time, is that there's a big difference between the drug user and the drug distributor, right? Big difference, right? And nobody in law enforcement that I know just wants to go lock up, uh, you know, young or, you know, drug users, right? And put them in jail and let them sit in jail, take up a bed in jail. I don't know too many people that want to do that. Yeah, now, it's such a when lie. The motive is, yeah, when the motive is to make money and the motive is to destroy communities and destroy families, then yes, law enforcement wants those people to serve their time and do what is, you know, their, you know, be accountable for their actions, right? And so, so we get it always gets twisted in the media because, like, yeah, you don't want to let out a guy that's a main sellhead for the Sinaloa cartel when they're chopping heads off, they're throwing people in acid, they're rolling heads on a dance floor. You know, those people need to stay in jail for a real long time. But then again, if you have a truck driver, for an example, that makes a mistake and is really not involved with the drug business, but has 50 kilos of cocaine in the truck and is extenuating circumstances. So, yeah, there is a time to be lenient, but every case is different. There's a different story behind every case. You can't just, you know, broad, you know, take a paintbrush and paint the whole scenario. Right. You have to look at each individual case. And quite frankly, the probation departments and the U.S. attorney's offices, they've done a pretty good job over the years of getting the background from the investigative agencies on the person, right? So I'm not saying you have to put everybody that's involved with drugs in jail for 50 years. That's not what I'm saying. Sure. You have to, you have to evaluate what the person's role is in the organization, what's the damage that's being done, and there has to be some thresholds. If you're pushing poison that's killing people, you need to go to jail like you're a murderer. That's the bottom line. Yeah, if you and, shoot and, somebody and you kill them, you go to jail for life, right? Or you should. And, and that's or what's you, scary you, because the people they want to let out now, I mean, you have professional traffickers. You know, there's only a certain amount of them. You let them out. Um, now you're talking about, you know, let's say they were put in at a time when the drugs weren't as deadly. Now you put them on the streets with their expertise and the lethality of today's drugs. I mean, that, that's a very scary combo. And then you don't have this deterrent and this tool. You know, um, I, I'm going to link to in show notes my article that just came out as we we're talking on air here um, about Chuck Grassley that used to say everything we're saying here. And then he flipped and he actually quoted you in that floor speech about how this is a tool to bust up narco terrorism and everything. And now, by, by passing this smarter sentencing act, as they call it, you know, they have these Orwellian names. And he actually said it's an Orwellian name. Um, you know, now we're not going to have that tool. And now he's supporting that very bill. It just. Yeah, well, that's politics, Daniel. I mean, this is what they, they'll say anything they need to say to get elected. And as a matter of fact, I think that guy has, what, seven or eight terms now? He needs to retire if he's saying <laughs> that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Because he's, he's really not interested in the public safety. And it's really embarrassing because you know what people don't realize? They don't realize that when you gain more and more responsibility to the people, then more eyes and ears are watching you and watching what you're saying and watching how you're acting. And so what you hear, what you see here with Grassley, in my view, based on what you're telling me, is that when it was popular back in the day, 
He was against, you know, sentencing reductions and all of this stuff, right? All the progress that was made on, you know, violent crime organizations. He was proud of that. But now all of a sudden, the pendulum is swinging the other way and he's jumping on the bandwagon, right? Well, yeah. you know what? People see through that. I mean, that's why I appreciate, you know, you putting out this kind of information because, now, when it comes time to make the, uh, you know, the vote in November or whenever, the guy's voted out and he's retired. And then he can sit back and watch the news and then feel responsible for things that are happening around the country to these poor families that are losing their loved ones to this unbelievable crisis. Yeah, it's, it's, it's truly unbelievable. Yeah, and this guy needs uh... – he needs term limits. He's the poster child for it. So we have that up here. Before I let you go, um, I just want to ask one more question here. Everyone, much to my chagrin, even my colleagues and allies, are just it's it's Mueller, Comey, and Bruce Orr all the time, all day long. This Russia stuff, the Hillary stuff, back and forth, this and that. You have an angle on Bruce Orr and, and Mueller that actually ties into the very important policy outcomes that people are missing. Could you talk a little bit about Bruce Orr and your experience with him on the counterterrorism side um, and maybe maybe Mueller if you have time? OK, yeah. So I'd be happy to talk about those two individuals. So with Bruce Orr, like, first of all, he was in charge of the threat mitigation working group, which was which was uh, really uh developed based on President Obama's transnational crime strategy. And it was a good thing. I was very happy to see that they were taking it serious. They finally recognized that if you want to really make a difference in attacking transnational crime, you have to have the interagency sharing intelligence, working together and prioritizing, you know, the, the, the targets. Right. So what we did and Bruce Hall was right in the middle of this as a co-chairman was to prioritize the biggest targets that were, you know, impacting America and Hezbollah as a terrorist organization was one of the top targets. So we had an initiative back in the day and it's still out there happening. It's still working. Hezbollah developed, you know, worldwide cocaine and money laundering activities. And they started taking advantage of getting involved in the cocaine business because so much money is to be made. And we identified like over like, let's just say 250 to 300 used car businesses in America that were sending cars to West Africa to support this Hezbollah trade-based money laundering scheme. But unfortunately, when we did our investigation back in those days, several years ago, we can only actually include 30 businesses in our uh, civil complaint in the Southern District of New York because we couldn't get all the agencies to come together and work. That was Bruce, Bruce Orr's primary job, okay? So uniting the agencies, using the tools of national power is what we were all supposed to be doing. Now, as the head of the Special Operations Division, I was very frustrated with this because the people that were above me in the other agencies, they were responsible, like DOJ, you, you know, they were the responsible entity to pull together the resources. And we had DOJ uh, agencies that weren't being cooperative for their own, you know, reasons, whatever. But so, so this goes back to the walls are up, right? So the walls after 9-11 were supposed to come down. So if you can't rely on uh, your number four guy in the Department of Justice, then what do you... What are you going to do, Daniel? Right. I mean, this is the guy you're relying on. Everyone's relying on him to, to break down the walls and the walls were not broken down. And as a result, I could tell you one story on the last day on the job when Jim Comey came out to see me uh, at SOD to say goodbye and everything like that. I asked him, like, what, what is the FBI doing with all of these other car business cases? Because they're all over America. And isn't it ironic? This week I'm reading about potential sleeper cells of Hezbollah in the U.S. Well, that was one of my fears before, because. Yep. Admiral Stavridis did a great job showing me 
how this this Hezbollah group was evolving all over Latin America, and he and he had a fireball slide showing the worst nightmare for him as the commanding admiral of our Southern Command, where the Islamic terrorists and the narco terrorists were coming together, and this fireball would form. Well, I'm thinking about Iran. I'm thinking about weapons of mass destruction. But then I can't comprehend why the U.S. interagency is not coming together. So even though we did a good job back in the day, we seized 150 million. We we hit like 30 car businesses. We only touched the surface. And now if you look at some of these car parks in West Africa, business is booming. So these trade-based scam uh, schemes, we didn't shut them down. They actually are, are booming right now. So 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 on Bruce Orr, my main issue is that as the head of the Department of Justice Threat Mitigation Working Group, you have a responsibility with that title to enforce what's right for the public, not what's right for you individually or any one agency, right? Even though we were looking at it from the drug angle and the money laundering angle, the DEA doesn't have all the expertise in the terrorism sure. cases and the intel community and some of the FBI guys. They have a lot of knowledge and stuff. Well, the idea was is bring everyone together and do what's right for national security. Now, with Bob Mueller, I'm going to tell you a couple of things. Wait, 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 right? Before you get to jump- Mueller, just, I just want to just, just make sure everyone understands what you're saying with or. So you're you're saying you guys discover cocaine network and and you know again people that are kind of like liberal on drugs eh, cocaine eh, whatever but you're saying you uncovered a Hezbollah money laundering operation the most dangerous terrorist group in the in the world really in terms of its its power and its 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 scope its reach its wealth and the weapons it has and we have people primarily I mean people we let in you know. The last generation, generation or so, um, from this part of the world, which is a whole nother conversation, and you're saying there's hundreds of businesses operating on our shores, from just like the bodegas, uh, Daniel, hundreds of them just sitting there doing business in America and sending money back. And and, and just to close the circle on that, wasn't Bruce Orr, as Associate uh, Attorney General, the head of Operation Cassandra? the whole operation that was designed to target Hezbollah's influence in Latin America and the cocaine trade that Obama shut down? Well, okay, there's a couple of things on that, all right? So make, let me make something really clear. You know, we, we talk about Obama shutting down. The thing is still actively going. I don't want to use the word shut down when it comes to the operation. Uh-huh. There were things that happened. There was other priorities and not priorities that make me happy. But the reality is, is that the law enforcement guys now are still doing a lot of great work. And so I don't want to mislead that this is like done. It's over. No, there's still some good work to be done. But here's the thing. Going back in that time, you're exactly right. Bruce Orr was designated pursuant to the president's transnational crime initiative to be the number one voice for the government to bring together the unity of effort to go after this threat to the country. And by the way, you know, I'm not a terrorism expert, but even the President Obama administration identified Hezbollah as the most or one of the most technically capable terrorist organizations in the world, right? And so now we have an opportunity to really knock them down hard, right? We have this U.S. interagency effort. We have all this information. We have the Patriot Act laws. We have some great prosecutors in New York, specifically our civil prosecutor, Sharon Levin and some other folks up there. And now we blow the opportunity because we can't, we're like the gang that can't shoot straight. We can't cooperate with each other. And Bruce sat there in silence. Now, 
the conspiracy theorists, and I'm not saying I have firsthand information on this, but I could tell you what I've been told, and I'm not big on spreading information on what I was told, but my sources are pretty good, that Bruce was far more interested in, in, in the Russian cases against the oligarchs, and he also had to maintain his great relationships with the FBI, which he has had a great relationship with the FBI over the years, and they've done some great cases on not only Russian organized crime, but other organized crime, Albanian organized crime, you know, Italian organized crime. So I'm not trying to knock that relationship, but he certainly seemed more interested in appeasing his friends over in the other Department of Justice agency than looking at what was in the best interest of the national security of the United States. That's how I see it. Now, again, this isn't something that, you know, I could prove, you know, 100 percent, but based on the circumstances and based on the lack, I'll give you an example. When we, arrest, when we arrested Victor Boot, billionaire arms trafficker in Russia, and the Thai government lower court ruled against his extradition to America, the entire Obama administration, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, uh, Eric Holder, they engaged and put you know, pressure on the Thais to do the right thing, to, ex, you know, to extradite him into America for the right reasons, right? And the guy came back and he faced justice and he's in jail now. But in the case of Ali Fayed, this Hezbollah operative that we arrested in the same sting operation that we arrested Victor Booth, that guy remained in prison in the Czech Republic. We had an extradition treaty with him, and that guy was let loose, and he went back to Lebanon because no one in the Department of Justice engaged. You know, I heard some excuse that there was a time zone difference and the guy got out because the call came in late or something like that. No. So, so how do you explain that? Oh, it's 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 very what? obvious. I mean, it's not about law and order. I mean, you know, it's about identity and politics. And there's there's um, you know, there's politically correct. You know, I'm not. I don't mean to get into this now, but I'm just you know, for our listeners today, they just deported um a guy who worked in a Nazi camp. Um, and yeah, he, sure that, yeah. he was an American citizen for 50 years. They denaturalized him, deported him. I'm not complaining about it. I'm saying, you know, but, that you know, there in that case, no one's going to defend the Nazi even after building a life here for 50 years and whatever. And even though he was young and probably was pretty low down the totem pole there, um, but that you could go full bore, apply statute. It is in um, – it's in uh, Section 212 of the INA. It's A2E. But – I got news for you, A2F and A2D, you look at the other things about if you're tied to terrorism, um, you're deportable and you're denaturalized. We don't seem to follow that as strictly. And it's, you know, yeah, it's I, the politics of the day. Exactly. Politics of the day. But, but Daniel, going back to, because I want to be able to explain this real quick on the Mueller side, why I'm upset there is that, first of all, post 9-11, he was one of the guys who was very supportive of the Special Operations Division and also recognizing that there was this dangerous connection between drugs and terrorism, he was involved in supporting the idea of having our counter-narco-terrorism section at SOD to coordinate with the FBI's terrorism division when there was case overlaps, right? So he was behind that. But then, you know, obviously his priority was, his number one priority was preventing terrorism, which is great, and I applaud his efforts over the years. But what, what, when cases like the Boston bombing happened, right, why wasn't our section utilized? Because we had real information on drug activities involving the, the Tamilan family, right, that could have been investigated by the Joint Terrorism Task Force members, but no one was, they, no one got the information. They didn't share it until the bomb went off, and then we started putting the pieces together. And the public doesn't even realize that, like, 
There's a triple homicide on 9-11, 2011 in Waltham, Massachusetts. There's three people mutilated in an apartment. And one of the, one of the, the, the deceased was Brendan Mess. He's a friend of Tamlin's from the boxing gym. But the second guy was a target of a DEA Homeland Security investigation in Boston looking at major international marijuana smuggling, you know, high purity marijuana smuggling. And this guy was laying in the puddle of blood, but no one knew that until after the bombs went off when they then thought, oh, my God, Tamlin must have been involved with that with that homicide. But so the point is, is that and then Bob Mueller goes out and testifies to Congress how they did a thorough investigation with the information that they had access to. And then you hear the police commissioner at Davis talk about how it would have been nice for his department to know that they had a radical terrorist living in the community. Yeah, and no one knew. Like they didn't share it with the with the interagency partners like you would expect this to happen. And again, I know they are inundated, they're overloaded with leads, they don't have enough resources. So I'm not trying to be a Monday morning quarterback at all. But what I'm saying is that that's why you have the other agencies. So what should have happened is they could have went to the Homeland Security and the DEA partners and said, hey, look, can you check through your systems? As a matter of fact, we have our counterterrorism people sitting at that special operations division. And as a matter of fact, Eric Holder has identified that as the information sharing deconfliction center for America, for the law enforcement agencies. Why not check with them and see if they have any intel on Tamlin and his family? And so if they would have done that, we would have been able to provide drug intelligence and we could have had investigators from the DEA and the, F- and the uh, HSI working under the purview of the JTTF to actually investigate this guy and his family and maybe see him doing something that would lead to an arrest. Remember Al Capone, right, Daniel? He was a mass murderer, but he was taken down on a tax charge. Yes. So if you're an international terrorist and the U.S. government has laws to take you out on money laundering or marijuana trafficking or some other crime, burglary or whatever, then you want to take that potential terrorist off the playing field. And let's start looking at these people as criminals first. They're not just, they're not just born and they're all of a sudden terrorists, right? They, they, they're criminals and they have this, 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 you know, agenda, but like, we have to look at this problem different. So, so Bob Mueller, I'm a little disappointed in him testifying to the public that they did a thorough job when in fact it wasn't a thorough job. They checked the boxes and did what they had to do. And then they went and interviewed the guy. And you know what? The guy then was able to put a bomb out on the streets in Boston. And little poor Mark Richard was blown to pieces in front of his parents. Okay. Wow. So that's the count. Where's the accountability on that? Like, why isn't that being talked about? Like, you know, I tried on the five-year anniversary to get that information out to the public. Because, you know, if I was uh, the family of any of those people, I would be a little bit upset. You know, besides the fact I lost my loved one. But. Just to show not only the government, you know, they didn't take care of business on the case, but then after the case is over, they misled the public on, like, we did everything we could do. Really? It sounds like what you're describing is not just incidental. You know, you could always have in any terrorism case where retroactively you could find, yeah, maybe there was a lead here or there. This seems to be prospectively a systemic problem that because they are so reliant on contraband, mainly drugs as the lead uh, moneymaker, certainly in this environment and climate, as the mother's milk of terrorism, not everyone involved in drugs is going to be involved in terrorism, but an overwhelming amount of those involved in terrorism will be involved in drugs. So DEA often might be the first troops on the ground so to speak, to discover the case just simply from a drug perspective. 
And, right, and DEA, Daniel, yeah. they, you know, DEA has like over like 90 offices in over 60 countries around the world, and they have outstanding relationships with the counterpart, counterparts. They also have a very large-scale informant network. So, yes, they do get information every single day, and they share it very well. But the truth be told is it's not just drugs. Look at counterfeiting, for an example. Counterfeiting, according to somebody told me recently, that counterfeit now has surpassed drug trafficking in the illegal, uh, you know, market, illicit market. And those guys in, in Paris that shot up the city that day, they were allegedly getting their money from the counterfeit sneakers, right? So you have all of these crimes, not just drugs and, and you know, and, and counterfeiting. But, and so if the criminal investigators, it's not just DEA, but Homeland Security, ATF, the U.S. Marshals are coming across all this crime that's generating millions of dollars, and especially in the K2 cases, then going to Yemen. How the hell do you explain millions of dollars going to Yemen from these gas stations and bodegas? There's got to be something that that is not right. I mean, I don't care, you know, who's in the gas stations and bodegas. That you, why are you sending that kind of money through the banks? And, and oh, there's another side of this, too, which really aggravates me personally, is that the banks are identifying these accounts in a lot of cases as suspicious, and they're mandated by the laws to actually report this to law enforcement. So if the bank is saying, you know, bank account A is connected to this bodega and we're seeing really, really suspicious activity, don't you think that requires like really, really extensive, you know, investigative work to figure out why are they sending this money to Yemen? Like you would think that that's like one-on-one, right? (laughs) Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more to this story is what I'm saying. There, there certainly is, and, and it seems like you have a lot more on your plate. It, it, it's like, you know, I, I think about the Yemeni-owned mini-marts and this whole crisis. I mean, the next question I would want to know is how we let them in the country, what we researched about their you know background before we allowed them to immigrate, who are their family members, who are they associated with. Again, if in 2015 you had – you know, 90 in the New York area. Then you had a whole bunch in Alabama, St. Louis, Chicago. And now we're seeing it happen every few weeks. See, I wasn't clued into this before you warned me about it. And it's not like, oh, this is something that happened. It's something that's intensifying now. That means there's an awful, this is not just one or two mistakes we made with immigration. I mean, there's got to be a lot more. No, no, exactly. And, And the thing is, is that like, you know, back in the Obama administration, and I didn't get involved with this, but they weren't even allowing people to look at social media platforms when people were applying for visas and stuff. That was kind of like violation of rights or whatever the hell they were calling it. But you know how much information is available out on the social media platforms? And I'm not talking about, you know, I'm talking about open, you know, communications. Like there's so much information that could be investigated just from the social media platforms that people apparently aren't really looking at too closely because, if you look at, the, at these profiles closely, you'll see some of these disturbing things. And you got to ask yourself, wait a minute, there's a global terrorist who's been documented by the United States Treasury all over these pictures everywhere on Facebook. And then they're sending millions of dollars to these guys. There's guns, there's blood, there's heads that are, you know, laying in the streets. And, and we're sitting there and, and we're letting this happen. And then on top of all of that, Daniel, the poor citizens are falling like zombies all over the place. And by the way, there's another side of the story. It's consuming our first responders and the resources, these firefighters, these police officers, and the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses. And on top of all that, Daniel, who's paying the bills when the big hospital bills come? 
these drug users that are going into these emergency rooms and getting the treatments, who's <laughs> paying not, for all that? They're not paying for it. <laughs> yeah. And so, so when your premiums go up and, you know, your insurance is through the roof, then it, it, it's all part of this massive problem. But people are not really, you know, paying attention to some of these fine details. And I appreciate, you know, on the show to be able to, you know, put some of this out to the public so they start looking at this themselves. It's just amazing. It's it's China, Mexican drug cartels, Middle Eastern immigrant terrorists, terror financing overseas, criminal justice, weakening of our laws. I mean, wow. It's just – and then healthcare. Exactly. It all ties together, but we're just going to hear about the soap opera you know, all day with Orr, yeah, Mueller, so and Comey. Yeah, Amorosa and her tape recordings, right? I mean, who <laughs> cares about Amorosa's tape recordings? I mean, really, think about but, it. First but, of all – it, but we'll I'm just saying, that. Derek, it's our people, too. I mean, to be fair, you know, the liberal media does it, but then the conservative media responds. And I, I, no, I can't. I know. I agree. I, you know, I, I can't. I don't want to get you in trouble, but I can't you know, say enough how much I appreciate you calling into some of these much bigger shows than mine and actually getting them to focus on, on substance. You know, if, if, if uh, mentioning Bruce Orr or Mueller will get them to focus on drugs and national security, then so be it. Well, oh. look, I, I, you know, some of the media does a great job, in my view, you know, getting the messaging out. I mean, it's about messaging. It's about educating people. Uh, it's about doing the right thing for the public. If you're a public servant, you get paid a lot of money. So at the end of the day, you have to look in the mirror and say, did I help do something productive to save somebody's life today? Did I, did I do something to prevent a terrorist act or a criminal act? And, you know, we have really a lot of heroes around America that wake up every day with the passion and commitment to do this. But when the politicians and the leaders that come into the agencies are not supporting it, it really it really blows my mind because I see like, you know, it's like the night of the living dead scenes start in Chicago, in New York, in D.C., back in New York. Right. They had a night. They had an episode about this like last year or 2016. And then when you watch the press conference of the Southern District of New York and the NYPD in 2015, if you watch that video, you will learn a hell of a lot about what this is all about, because they did a great job in front of the media explaining how the network, how it works, the wholesalers, the distributors, the, the warehouses, the retail locations. That's like the textbook case. They did a phenomenal job. The only thing that I would ask is like, what's happening with all the money flows? Like, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they've done. I noticed a hell of a lot of commitment by some people from the NYPD, and I know the DEA up in New York, uh, because uh, I, I know these guys. Huh? Is that Agent Hunt? Hello? Well, Jamie, he's in charge of the DEA, and he's a very committed law enforcement professional. Uh, and he, his units did a great job in 2015 in the strike force over there, multi-agency strike force. But the thing is, he said, you know, there's another issue, too, with, with like, in, in Alabama, for example, like the U.S. Attorney's Office down there wouldn't take the case from the feds initially because it was too low level. It was only spice. Right. Oh. But then when they started seeing the millions and millions of dollars going overseas to Yemen and the governor was very outspoken about getting the terrorists out of the state. Right. All of a sudden now the U.S. attorney's office, the politician comes out of the woodwork and is basically like blaming DEA for not properly coordinating the thing. It was a joke. I mean, it was a political joke. The DEA was out there every day trying to do the right thing. 
And as soon as, you know, it turned into this terrorism, you know, related, potential related event, then all of a sudden there's second guessing, you know. But but the other problem is the laws against this stuff are so weak, Daniel. Uh, you know, even if you get caught in the K2 ring in many states, it's not even illegal, I don't think. And then federally, you, you know, the quantity, you know, it has to be significant quantities. Because the resources yes. are involved with other things. Because the feds aren't locking up this low-level, nonviolent crap that so many on both sides of the aisle seem to be saying. You're saying they—they, they, it was so bad when you were even there that they wouldn't take these cases when afterwards these guys were found to be tied to terrorism and everything. Um, and that you know that that's a whole thing in itself, where the uh, assistant uh, attorney said that. Um, you know, thirty million dollars was flowing back to Yemen. This is from Alabama. Um, a family that seemed to be connected to a notorious terrorist had a lot of uh, uh, disturbing postings on their social media. So you know, uh, or at least you could surmise in a pretty educated way that this isn't just your typical maybe Mexican drug trafficker, which is bad in, in and of itself. There's clearly something more at play here. Um, wow. Right. And it's definitely something more nefarious also. I mean, there's people probably sitting in China or sitting in other countries just loving the fact that the U.S. government is consumed with the drug crisis now. They'll just continue to send all these bombs into the country, all these poisonous chemical bombs. You know, it, it, it all so. gets back um, – it, it, it all gets back uh, to the point that um, <laughs> the Muslim Brotherhood said it best. That we're going to sabotage the infidel by their own miserable hands, and exactly, th- th- and that's what the Taliban leaders were saying back in the day out of Afghanistan. So this isn't a coincidence. No, absolutely. Well, anyway, I promised you I would uh, do a write up on this. I want to really get this out on the web as well. But thanks for joining us, giving us always two, three times more than what we asked for. Um, you're always so informative, and we're really looking forward to having you back again. All right, buddy. Have a nice day, Daniel. Take care. God bless. Thanks. Well, that was Derek Maltz. He's a real pistol. I mean, you know, you hear it in his voice, the sincerity. I I asked him for an hour. He gave me double the time. Um, he's different than any other former government, uh, you know, high high ranking official in law enforcement, whatever, who's co- comes out in the cable shows, which he's not really on that much. Um, it's all about self promotion and everything. All about politics. Notice. He, even where he, you know, I goaded him to take a swipe at people. He didn't really want to do it so much, even on you know my show, much less on a, on a bigger you know cable show or something. It's he, he there's not a political bone in his body. You know, yeah, he's on the conservative side of things. I'm sure he probably voted for Trump, but he um it's it's there's nothing political about him. He genuinely cares. I mean, this is the type of guy you want in government. Um. Just real sincere guy. You should listen to this show slowly because you know he's got that New York accent really quick, rapid fire, throws in so much information, and there's so much more. I'm going to try to do a write up on some of the on this Alabama case and other stuff. Um, he told me offline, uh, assuming he wants to he wants that public. But anyway, we're just about out of time. I had a lot more I wanted to get to, but. You know, send me your questions you want me to send to Derek. Um, email me dharwitz at crtv.com. And we'll, we're going to keep plowing away on the important issues of substance. We're going to keep eschewing this group think. We're going to think for ourselves here. We're going to focus on what's important. 
irrespective of the soap opera going around going on around us and we're going to do our little bit here to try to publicize the issues that actually matter god bless y'all thank you for listening this has been another episode of the conservative conscience